Today's scripture reading comes from Acts, chapter 8, just right after the Gospels, verses 26 through 30. It begins, An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip. It said, At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now this road is long, in the desert, sandy, a quite undesirable road to walk upon. And so he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Canids. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting on his carriage. The spirit told Philip, approach this carriage and stay with it. So Philip, running up to the carriage, heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He leaned in and asked, do you really understand what you're reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear in the silent. So he didn't open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants? Because his life was taken from this earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, about whom does this prophet say this? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. And then later, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look! Water, what would keep me from being baptized? He ordered that carriage to halt, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up from the water, the Lord's Spirit suddenly took Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself in Azotus, the and then he traveled through that area, preaching the good news in all the cities until he had reached Caesarea. The word of God in scripture, the word of God among us, the word of God within us. Amen. When I was in college, about once or twice a year, we were visited by a guy that I called Bible and Barstool Guy. He would come to the campus at University of North Texas carrying a Bible and a bar stool, hence my very creative name for him. And he would sit there, occasionally stand up, and get real energized about whatever he was saying. And he had the Bible in his hand, although I don't recall him ever actually opening it to read. And it had post-it notes and lots of highlighted pages in it, so you knew that he read it a lot, right? And, and it was really just there, I think, as a prop for this kind of circus theater something to do with his hands, I guess, while he yelled at us, uh, you know, is the greatest hits of, uh, uh, you're going to go to hell because you drink underage, or you're going to go to hell because you're promiscuous, or you're going to go to hell because of this or that. You, I mean, usually we were going to hell. That was the gist. And um, what a compelling message to have received as a college student. Um, Normally you'd walk by and I'd stand there and listen for a few minutes and chuckle or just think, oh goodness, because there'd be a crowd gathered and it was just a scene. Then I'd continue on to English class or wherever I was headed. But then one day I walked past and 
it was darker than normal, meaning the, the content of his message. He was talking about how people who are differently abled, who have physical or mental disabilities, are the way that they are because their parents were sinners. And unfortunately, there is a line somewhere in the midst of these pages that if you pluck it out of its context and history and purpose, uh, could maybe lead you to that really troubling theology. He didn't bother with any of that nuance, however. He just said what he said, and understandably, a lot of people were really angry, myself being one of them, but I kept watching. There was this one couple, and for some reason, I distinctly remember her wearing a Slipknot concert t-shirt. I don't know why, but she was furious with him, and she started yelling at him, and he was yelling at her, and people, all the group started yelling at one another until finally this one jabroni, uh, this guy who was wearing at that time was the official uniform of male campus ministries for Christians, and he had a, a mostly buzzed haircut and a North Face jacket and a trucker cap. If you went to college at the time that I did, you know what I'm talking about. And he said, Everybody who loves Jesus, come over here for a group hug. And I mean, I love Jesus, but I wasn't feeling especially touchy-feely that day, I guess, and so I didn't go over there. Didn't feel like joining that group hug in that moment, hearing the gospel that I was hearing proclaimed. And then someone else said, well, if you are an atheist, then come over here and join this group hug. And so all of a sudden I watched as this evangelist in his ministry, created the scene in front of me of these two tightly formed group hugs with a whole lot of people joining neither, watching as I was, these circles that were tightly formed and only looking inward. And I thought, is this ministry? Is this the work of the church? Is this what Jesus came to proclaim? I was still discerning a call to ministry at that point, but I knew one thing. I never wanted to be like Bible and barstool guy. Because while it was kind of funny at first, it was actually incredibly damaging. I wonder what we as people of faith who live in a world where unfortunately the church can draw circles really tightly. Have you been a part of a church that wanted to draw the circle really tight? Or maybe you've heard a gospel proclaimed that didn't bring hope but actually brought pain. What do we do as a people of faith? What's the good trouble we are called to in a world like that, in a place like that, in a season like that? This morning we're looking at the book of Acts, chapter 8. And the book of Acts is actually a sequel of sorts. Uh, I love a good sequel. I hope you do too. And it's, it's actually the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Why they're not paired together in the canon of Scripture is beyond me. It seems like that would have made a lot of sense. But essentially, the book of Acts is Luke part two. And the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus, just like every gospel is. But the unique flavor that Luke brings is that Jesus is specifically for and uniquely for and positioned with the marginalized and the oppressed and the other, the outsider, those who beyond the tight circle of the church. And so the, the, the book of Acts is a continuation of that story, though in place of Jesus, now we have the body of Christ, meaning the church, this early Christian movement that seeks to draw that circle wider and wider and wider and to consider who it is that God actually could include in God's faith family. And so these two books, in a way, are, are books about making good trouble. 
when Jesus makes good trouble in the gospel and when the church makes good trouble in the book of Acts. But it's in chapter 8 that I want us to focus our attention this morning as we consider the story involving three persons who each make good trouble in different ways. Let's talk about them this morning. The first is Philip. Now, Philip is not Philip the Apostle, one of the twelve apostles. No, this is Philip, one of the original seven deacons. And deacons in the book of Acts were commissioned to to care for the poor. Today we have deacons in the church as well. In fact, pastors Maggie and Kathy are both deacons in the United Methodist Church, and their call is to connect essentially the heart of the church to the heart of the world. They're called to compassion and justice in addition to word and service. And they're, they're meant to turn our attention and to see those whom we may not otherwise see, to be about that sort of Lucan style of ministry, of, of working for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Well, Philip was one of the first seven deacons. So what does that tell us about who Philip was? To be one of the first seven people chosen for this kind of work, I mean, that tells you a lot about his heart and about his eyes, the people that he saw and whom he knew were worthy of God's love. And so in chapter 8, this is really Philip's chapter. If we go back and read the first half of of this chapter, I hope that you do sometime today, you'll find there's a a whole other story that I'll summarize for us now, where Philip begins his public ministry and he goes to Samaria. Now Samaria is this place referenced in the Gospels as as sort of the place where the other lives. It's that that next-door neighbor who really feels like they're light years apart from you. Do you know what that feels like? Do you have someone? like that in your life, who, who lives right next door, but it feels like you're light years apart. Well, that was Samaria for the Jewish people, like Philip. And, and so he goes to this place, and, and not only does he go and share the gospel in terms of the, the word of the gospel, he also shares healing, because Philip, being a deacon, knows that the gospel is more than just well-meaning words. It's actually offering people real tangible hope improving the conditions of their life because we face real tangible problems that can't just wave a wand and say, well, it'll be better one day and make things better that way. So he goes and he's, he's bringing healing to this community, but there's this interesting wrinkle in the story where there's this sorcerer there, a sorcerer in Samaria, and you might know, a sorcerer is turned into like a fantasy story. Well, think of it more like a snake oil salesman. This was a guy who had convinced everyone and was selling this, this sort of charade that, that he could fix their problems, but of course he, he couldn't. And he was getting rich in the process, and he had a lot of power in this community. Philip comes and kind of exposes him for the fraud that he is. Now, what do you think happens next? You know, if Paul, if the Apostle Paul, who's kind of a firebrand, had been sent to Samaria, you know, perhaps what he would have done is, is kicked the sorcerer out or given him a lashing and made sure that that he was never welcomed back in this place again you know you're a wolf in sheep's clothing I can hear Paul in my ears right now that's not Philip's approach instead of casting the sorcerer out he actually invites him in and along with the rest of the community the sorcerer too is baptized and brought into the family of faith that is expanding into this place where enemies and other people those people live Samaria in this place with this people that People like Philip, people from a Jewish tradition may have thought, how is this possible? How could God's grace and forgiveness be available to them? I thought they were irreconcilable. And Philip shows us that's not the case. And so if you're listening to this story, this Acts chapter 8 story, because they were originally stories that were told, not written down. If you're listening to this story in those days, you're thinking to yourself, wow, this Philip 
is crazy. I cannot believe that he would go and seek to include a Samaritan sorcerer in God's family. But the story continues with the text that we heard read this morning where Philip encounters the Holy Spirit's nudge once again. And I love the way that our text describes Philip's response to the Spirit. He uses words like, so he did, and running after the chariot, or not the chariot, but the, 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 um, the carriage. It says that he proclaimed the good news, the gospel. They went down and Philip baptized him, just like that. No other words, just Philip baptized him in the stream. I love the way that it describes Philip's actions because it paints this picture where Philip is so responsive to God's leading. And never once does Philip second guess where this kind of radically, whether this kind of radically inclusive ministry is right, whether or not it's the right thing. He just does it. He's so impulsive in a good way. He doesn't call a committee meeting, Methodists. He doesn't wait for the recommendation of the Jerusalem council, or he doesn't even question the presence of God in that moment. And how often does that really happen? How often do we have examples of people who are so receptive to the movement of the Spirit? I think about Abram and Sarai and how they said, oh no, God, surely not us. Or how Moses said, oh God, Surely you need someone else to lead your people. Or even in the Gospel of Luke, Book of Acts Part 1, when the angel of the Lord, same kind of situation as here, approaches Zechariah, and Zechariah says, oh no, surely you mean somebody else. And the angel approaches Mary, and Mary says, oh no, I don't know if this is right. I mean, surely you mean somebody else. Even the shepherds who the angel appears to, the shepherds say, let us now go and confirm what the angel has said. They, they follow, but they're waiting to confirm what they've heard. But what does Philip do? Not Philip. Philip runs after the carriage. Philip goes and does exactly what the Spirit asks him to immediately. Philip doesn't just tell the good news. He proclaims the gospel. He doesn't ask this Ethiopian eunuch to fill out a new member form or to take a confirmation class. He baptizes him in the moment. He is so utterly filled with passion to see the gospel at work in the world, to bring real hope into the world that he, in the best kind of impulsive way, follows every nudge and allows the grace of God to flow as freely as a baptismal stream that we find in the desert. So we'll talk about the Ethiopian eunuch in one moment, but suffice it to say for right now as we're talking about Philip that the Ethiopian eunuch's inclusion would have been deemed even more radical, perhaps, than the Samaritans. Philip would no doubt have people back home who would question the inclusion of this man who would think, Philip, are you off your rocker? How can you think the circle is meant to be wide enough for him? And so chapter 8 in the book of Acts becomes a living testimony as to what is possible when we simply go with the flow of the grace of God and naturally see ourselves as belonging to a family of faith that includes all people in all places. Philip is no doubt going to be seen as a troublemaker by the leaders, some of the leaders in the early movement who have a harder time understanding God's new grace with their we've always done it this way mindset. Do you know anybody like that? Have you been that person before? And so my friends, the question is this, when, when God's grace flows in, uh, in surprising ways, when God's grace flows in surprising ways like a baptismal stream in the midst of a desert, what is our impulse? Is our first impulse to say, really, God? Are you sure, God? Not me, God. Not God. I don't know, God. Or is our first impulse to say yes?
Thank you, God. So that's the first person in this story. The second person is the Ethiopian eunuch. They're a good troublemaker as well. Just as Philip makes good trouble by responding impulsively to the Holy Spirit, the Ethiopian eunuch makes good trouble, but in a very different way. And to understand how, we need to understand those two adjectives that get assigned to this unnamed person. First, to be Ethiopian. It could have been a descriptor of, of where he was from, meaning from Ethiopia. That, that was a place and a kingdom and a people in that time. It's reasonable that he could have been from the Ethiopian Empire. And it was also a term for the Jews living in the time they did in the midst of the Roman Empire. To be Ethiopian could have meant to be someone who was very dark-skinned and from the ends of the earth. That was kind of the implication. They, they're from those edges of the map that are not fully filled in. You know, in those days, it was as though the earth had these, these ends to it. And if you go on YouTube now, you can learn more about a flat earth as well. But in those days, that was the common understanding. And, and to be Ethiopian was to come from this kind of region, from those unfinished ends of the earth. To be a eunuch... Well, on the one hand, it meant technically that, that you had been castrated, that you had been mutilated in some way, and your sexuality was now very much other. It meant that you wouldn't have been allowed into the temple. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that says, if you were like this man, you're, no, you're not allowed into some of the holy spaces of the temple, the same temple that he'd been on a pilgrimage from the ends of the earth to go see. To be a eunuch also meant that you were in a high court, that you were a high court official, as it describes him being a, a, an official of the treasury. Because you were meant to be more focused on the legacy and lineage of the royal family than you should be focused on your own. So a lot is bound up in these two words that get attached to this unnamed man, the Ethiopian eunuch. He would have been seen not as a neighboring enemy, but quite literally as someone from the very ends of the earth. Even in his pilgrimage to the temple, he would have been denied entry into this spaces where the faithful chosen had called home. He was quite a reach for the family of God. It's as though Luke is saying, you thought a Samaritan sorcerer was a stretch. What do you think about this? And so then when the man asks this question, what is to prevent me from being baptized? That's a question that works on two levels. On the one hand, it's a question that works for Philip. He's asking him in that moment, is there anything to prevent me from being baptized? Because I know who I am. And I know what it means to be denied. I know what it means to be turned away. I just experienced that. So what do, what do you say to me now? It's also a question that works on us as the listeners, whether 2,000 years ago or today. When we encounter men like this, when we encounter people like this, who are, have been told time after time, no entry here, this holy space is not for you, you are too far beyond the reach of the family of God, what do we say? What good trouble are we willing to make? What is to prevent someone like him from being baptized? from being drawn into the family. My friends, it reminds me that the grace of God does not come with terms and conditions, even though we like to put a lot of those in place, unfortunately. What is to prevent me from being baptized? The obvious answer is nothing. I mean, from what we know of him, the only apparent sin of the Ethiopian eunuch, and by that I mean the only thing that would have prevented him from being included, the only thing that would have kept him from, en from entering into the family of faith in the eyes of others was the fact that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. It was his personhood, it was his full self, who he was, that would have denied him entry and challenged the status quo. 
I recognized something that morning when I was in college, and I recognized it in Acts chapter 8, that exclusive church draws people into very unforgiving circles. But an Acts 8 church draws the circle wider around authentic people. So what kind of church do we feel called to be? Do we feel like we're called to be a biblical church? Because this is what a biblical church looks like. It's what happens when living as your authentic self is good trouble in and of itself. I know some of us know what that feels like more than others. When claiming who you are and who God has made you to be and and bringing your full self into that circle, that in and of itself is making good trouble. And because the Ethiopian eunuch is able to take this honest and authentic and confident approach, what's to prevent me, he says? He's all the more able to go home and continue to draw the circle ever wider. You won't find this in Scripture. It says he goes home, but, but the, the tradition of the church is that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, that is the, the longest lineage into Christianity in the continent of Africa, they point to this man, this unnamed man, as their church father. This is where it started, we say. Because he was able to live an honest, authentic life, because he brought his full self in, and the circle was drawn ever wider as a result. So we've talked about the two persons so far that that make good trouble in the story, but there is a third there's a third in Acts chapter 8. And did, did, did you notice who it was? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third character in the story. You could say the Holy Spirit is the protagonist, the one that's really at work, that Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are just simply following the, in the footsteps of what the Holy Spirit is guiding. Sometimes I think that we forget that good troublemaking was God's idea first. It's helpful to be reminded that this is not our story. I think about Genesis chapter 1, when God is about that creation work, and it says that the ruach, the breath of God, that Holy Spirit breath of God, hovers over the waters and troubles the waters. And out of chaos and disorder, new life is brought about. I think ever since Genesis 1, God has been troubling the waters of disorder and chaos and even evil ever since. To understand the power of Acts chapter 8, we have to understand what happens in Acts chapter 7 too. Chapter 7 is the story of Stephen. It's one of the most tragic passages in the New Testament. Stephen is one of these early Christians, and he's brought before something called the Sanhedrin. It's essentially this court in in this council in Jerusalem, and they're asking him to answer for this gospel that he's been proclaiming, the work that he's been doing, so he shares the gospel to this group, and he also calls out his own community and the ways in which they have failed to live up to the faithful standards that God has set for them for so long. And in, in turn, as a result, he is, the Sanhedrin sentences him to be taken out and stoned to death. That's what happens in Acts chapter 7. And then we see what happens in Acts chapter 8. So in the face of this injustice and what happens to Stephen, it's as though the Holy Spirit says, fine, if you won't listen, if the tight circle of the church isn't going to listen, If you're not going to look outward and consider how you can draw the circle wider, then I'm going to go make some good trouble in the area. I'm going to go make some good trouble on 
unnamed desert road with an unnamed man that you turned away. I'm going to go make some good trouble of my own since you don't want to be a part of this movement. My friends, if we hear nothing else this morning, I hope that we hear this. We are called to be agents of wind upon the water, troubling the water, causing good trouble in this world to the ends of the earth just like the Holy Spirit, because this is God's idea first. When disorder or chaos or evil trouble your heart, then follow God's grace and trouble the waters once again. When evil or chaos or disorder trouble your heart, follow God's grace and trouble the waters once again. And so as we seek to impulsively follow God's grace like Philip, or maybe as we seek to live authentically in God's great family as the Ethiopian eunuch, may we always be reminded that this is not our story alone, but ours is a chapter that is simply part of a much larger story, God's good trouble story. Amen.